today's we're talk, we're, today's sermon is love your neighbor. The last time I spoke, it was about God's love for us. Today, it's going to be about how we are to love each other. So, for some of us, this can be difficult a difficult part of being a Christian. Loving your neighbor is yourself. We, we even have love your neighbor on our signs as you drive out the driveway and leave the church. We love our uh, how we love our neighbors is an outward sign of how we love God. Jesus told us this very clearly in John 13, 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus taught his disciples to love each other. They were from different backgrounds, fishermen, a doctor, a zealot, and most despised of all in the Jewish community, a tax collector. They all had one thing in common, though. They loved Jesus, and that was the one thing that united them. That was uh, the thing that bound them together. It took a little time, but as they came to know each other, their love for each other began to grow. The disciples, while they were with Jesus, were the model of the church to come. So how do we love one another as a church? 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is all about love, and we're going to look at specifically at verses 4 through 7. Typically, these verses are used in a wedding to, uh, for the love between a husband and wife. And Y'all have all heard this many, many times, and I know y'all know it. But Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth. This instruction was intended for all believers regarding how they were to love each other as the body of the church. So 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, and always perseveres. Paul lays this out plainly for us in this chapter, that love is not just, of how to love not just our brothers and sisters, but to love the lost who don't know him yet. If we are to be a tight-knit family of brothers and sisters in Christ, the characteristics of 1 Corinthians 13 are how we are to treat each other. This scripture groups related issues together because most of them are linked to each other. The groupings of these issues are like the sides of a coin. They're different, but they're connected at the core. So let's look at these for a few minutes. So love is patient, love is kind. The Oxford Dictionary defines patience this way. Able to accept or tolerate delays, problems, or sufferings without becoming annoyed or anxious. It's easy to become annoyed in some, with someone who doesn't see things the way we do because 
well, obviously, we know the best way to do everything. So, <laughs> And when it doesn't feel like we're, things are going to go our way, you start to get that knot in your stomach thinking this is a big mistake. You're just going to ruin this. Well, then we start to get ang anxious and we push for whatever the subject is to be done the way we want it. This usually results in conflicts that if they go too far, the result is a broken relationship. And relationships are what hold a people together either in a congregation or in a community. This is one of the reasons we are to be patient, to give ourselves time to build the relationships that will last the long haul. When conflicts do arise and things start to get difficult, we must have patience that can see us through to the other side of the problem. We all at some point in our lives have been faced with a situation where the decisions we have to make will affect our lives or the people around us. And sometimes the decisions or actions made by other people affect our own lives. How many of us have had our patience tested by the behavior or decisions of other people? It can be a real test of our faith and stretch the limits of our grace when our patience is challenged. In Numbers chapter 13, we see how the decision of the Israelites not to go into the land God had promised them affected the lives of the Israelites for the next 40 years. Caleb stood before the people and told them that they should go in and take the land because God told them he would give it to them. Numbers 13, 30, and 31. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. The, but the men who had gone before him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. Caleb stood before the Israelites and tried to convince them that they could possess the land, but the Israelites were afraid, so they made the decision in fear, and the result was they wandered in the desert eating manna and quail forever. Many of them died in the wilderness before they could ever see the promised land, however, Caleb did not Caleb did go into the promised land, but it took 40 years for him to be able to go in. When Israel did not listen to Caleb, he didn't turn his back on them. He didn't walk away in frustration. He didn't, put, he didn't quit supporting Israel, even when the other spies started giving bad reports about the promised land to all the other people. The Israelites even got so angry that night that they talked about stoning Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb. So Caleb didn't lose his temper or resort to arguing or fighting with them. He remained patient and honored God, and the Lord saw that Caleb put him first in everything that he did. So in Numbers 14, 24, it says, but because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him in to the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. 
the Lord saw that Caleb had a different spirit, and this caught his attention. Caleb's patience and faith in what the Lord had said was rewarded when the Israelites finally did go into the promised land. The decision made by the Israelites cost Caleb 40 years, but his patience is what got him to the promised land. To some, this may seem like a pretty extreme case, but it really isn't. You know this if you are a parent or a friend of someone that you've been praying for for their salvation for years. You may at times feel discouraged and feel like it's never going to happen, but your faithful prayers will be rewarded. Your patient prayers are an act of love, and they will be answered. This brings us to the second part of that sentence, love is kind. Kindness is the quality of being friendly, generous, and considerate. Kindness, it just seems, goes hand in hand with patience, as if one supports the other. Patience is an act of kindness, and kindness requires patience to be effective. An act of kindness can have an impact on someone that can last a lifetime and change someone's life dramatically. Um, Bob Green wrote a book called Once Upon, a Ta- uh, Once Upon a Town, The Miracle of North Platte, Nebraska. It's the story of a town of 12,000 people in the middle of the Nebraska plains that touched most of the lives of the soldiers who went off to battle in World War II. In those days, if you traveled coast to coast, you had to take a train. And one of the main routes used to transport troops went through North Platte, Nebraska. Well, soon after the war began, the town realized that these trains were coming through North Platte every day, all day long, some of them as early as 5 a.m. and some of them as late as midnight. But the town realized that these trains would stop for 10 minutes at the train station in North Platte just 10 minutes, probably long enough to refuel the the locomotive or whatever. And the troops would get off the train and they would come into the train station. So the women in the town started taking food up to the train station and they would set up tables and just have people there to greet them when they got off the train. These trains were going back and forth across the country There were soldiers going to Europe and soldiers going to the Pacific. The women of the town would bring food to the train station. They'd bring coffee, donuts, sandwiches, and they would even bring cakes and whatever else they had made and share it with the soldiers. And they would let them know that they were cared for and appreciated before they got back on the train. So as Bob Green was interviewing these soldiers, At the time, some of them were in their 70s and 80s. Tears would begin to stream down their cheeks. And they talked about how they would step off the train and be greeted by these women and girls that reminded them of their their moms and their aunts and their sisters and their cousins. They would talk to them and give them something to eat. They had 10 minutes, and then they would get back on the train and with kind words following them. 
these now old men would tell the story of how on cold nights in their foxholes, they would be laying there in the dark and then they would hear one of the other fellows yell out, wouldn't it be nice to be back in North Platte again? And then for a few minutes, they weren't in their foxholes, they were in the train station hearing the kind words of someone they had just met. By the end of the war, over six million troops had stopped in North Platte, Nebraska. Six, over six million troops had been the recipient of the town's kindness. The stop was just 10 minutes, but those 10 minutes had an impact that lasted a lifetime with these men. Sometimes just a kind gesture or a kind word is all that someone needs to change things for them. We get in a rush and it seems like we can't be bothered to show someone kindness. It really doesn't cost us much, but maybe a few seconds to be courteous to someone. Smile at the server through the, at the drive-thru and say hello. The next time, let that guy in who's trying to get in front of you in traffic, let him in. Take the time to visit with people after church. <laughs> so, Continuing with the scripture, love, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. Envy, what do you have that I don't have? Boasting, what do I have that you don't? Pride, hey, look at what I've got. These characteristics not only apply to material things, but they apply to our spiritual walk too. We can be envious of someone else's property to the point of jealousy. We can also be envious of someone else's gifts or position in church. If we focus on why this person has this gift and I don't, rather than focusing on what gifts do I have that I can use to be productive in the kingdom of God, it can become a stumbling block in our relationships with God and the people around us. In Romans, Paul includes envy, boastfulness, and pride in his list of wickedness. He puts them in the same company as murder, malice, and associates them with God-haters. It is not these sins, it's not that these sins are worse than others, it's just that they are sins. And as such, they should be repented of. Romans 1, 29-30 says, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful, and they invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Jesus addressed envy and boastfulness and pride when he taught the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke 18, 9 through 14 says, To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people 
robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he would not even look up at heaven. He beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. First of all, we have to look at who Jesus was addressing this parable to rather than just the parable itself. He was speaking to the people in the crowd who were relying on their own self-righteousness, depending on their works rather than the relationship with God. With that perspective of themselves, they were also looking down on everyone else. This combined two of the characteristics, boasting, what do I have that you don't, and pride, hey, look at what I've got. Jesus said the Pharisee stood by himself to pray. That didn't mean he stood apart from the crowd. It meant, in fact, the opposite, that the Pharisee stood by, him, stood by himself so he could be seen by the rest of the people sitting around him in the temple. He prayed loud enough so that he could be heard by the people around him. And he wanted to be sure that his list of accomplishments would be known to everyone in the room. The words Jesus used in describing the Pharisee were that he exalted himself. Exalting himself actually combines all three of the negative characteristic, characteristics. It adds envy to the mix. How do I compare to those around me? Am I going to have to do something to raise my own status in their eyes? In the parable, Jesus said the tax collector, the tax collector stood at a distance and prayed. He looked up to heaven. He couldn't even look up to heaven. He was having a private conversation with God, expressing his remorse for his sin and asking for forgiveness. The tax collector humbled himself and acknowledged his sin before God and was forgiven. So the next part of that scripture is it does not dishonor others and it is not self-seeking. Well, for this part, it seems like we can continue with our friend the Pharisee because he seems to cover a lot of bases here. In this context, dishonor means to bring shame or disgrace. Dishonoring others is similar in many ways to these other characteristics, but it has the added compo component of cruelty. In the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee is publicly humiliating the tax collector. First of all, just by calling everyone's attention to the fact that he's there. Secondly, all of this was being done in an attempt to inflate his own image with the people in the temple. He's using the tax collector to make himself look good in the eyes of the people around him. This is where self-seeking comes into the act. Self-seeking is to be concerned for oneself before others. This is all being done at the expense of the tax collector. The tax collector already knows his sin. 
He knows where he's failed. That's why he's there. That's, he's there to repent and seek God to restore his relationship with the Father. If we look at the parable from the tax collector's point of view, he would have known the, that he would be subject, subjected to criticism and ridicule if he even went to the temple. People, the tax collectors in Jesus' time, didn't even, most of them didn't even go to temple. I, I doubt that any of them did other than maybe this one or two. But these things didn't matter to the tax collector because he had, was so humbled and ready to seek God that he was willing to endure whatever ridicule, whatever criticism he would get to go to the temple. What was most important for him was that he entered into God's presence. And he would endure all of the abuse that surely he surely would have been subjected to by entering the temple. To come into the temple and pray for forgiveness, he had to let go of his pride, humble himself, and acknowledge his sins and confess them to God. So the next part of the scripture is, love is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. This part is hard. Of all of the attributes listed in this scripture, this one, love is not easily angered, is perhaps the easiest one to get caught up on. If you have reached the point in your life where you're cool and calm in every situ situation, you're doing exceptionally well. <laughs> Most of us have something that can cause, us, cause anger to rise up in us if we aren't watchful. Sometimes it's the little things that don't really matter, but they just hit us the wrong way at the wrong time. Like the person who messed up your order in the drive-thru or the guy ahead of you in traffic, cutting you off and even squeezing into that space even though there really isn't enough space for his car. He just goes in anyway. <laughs> As I said earlier, some of these things I still have work to do. One thing for me is calling the cable company and having to go through the phone maze. I hate that so much. Press 1 for the internet. Press 2 if you're experiencing a service outage. Press 3 if you want to be put on hold for 30 minutes. <laughs> I don't like calling any of these companies. I, I prefer to speak to someone in person. So as I was working on this message, I had to stop and make some phone calls about some of the contracts for service to, services the church has. I had to call the electric company, the phone company, and the security company, and so on, and it just became a repetitive cycle of frustration. It required multiple phone calls to get to the right person, and then when you got to that person, you either got disconnected or they said, oh, I have to pass you on to somebody else. In one instance, I had worked my way through the phone maze and it had left me on hold for about 20 minutes. There wasn't even any hold music. It was just dead silence. And then finally, this automated voice came on and said, would you be willing to take a customer service satisfaction survey? 
And I was so frustrated. I said, uh, okay. And so I went through the questions and I gave them a zero on everyone. <laughs> I got to the end of the survey and the recorded voice came on and said, thank you, and then hung up. Oh, I had to remind myself when I finally did get to speak to a live person that they were talking to me for the first time and that they were going to try and help me. I had to remind myself that. They had probably spoken to 100 people before me, and I'm sure most of them weren't happy either. But I had to remind myself, be slow to anger. And I'm trying to do better about all this. So what is coupled with anger, like the next car of a train, is keeping records of wrongs. This can range from bringing up a past offense during an argument or holding on to something until it's an all-out grudge. It's far too easy to be confronted by someone about something we've done or said, and then we lash back and say, well, you did the same thing to me two weeks ago. That's no. So it's, it's like these wrongs are entered into a big ledger book. Y'all you know, remember the old ledger books? They were like this long and about this wide. And about that thick, they were just right for beating somebody over the head with it. So, and you know, I'm ashamed to say that I have done that in the past and I'm trying to do better. I'm trying to work my way down from the ledger book to just post-its, you know, just <laughs> stucco. So, love does not delight in evil but rejoices in the truth. It says, rejoices with the truth. It says, love rejoices with the truth, not love rejoices in the truth. So what is the truth in this context? Well, the truth is Jesus. The scripture says, we rejoice together with Jesus because, as I said in the beginning, the, with the disciples, Jesus is what unites us and binds us together. Everyone who knows Jesus has the truth in them because Jesus is in them. Jesus told this to the disciples just before he was to be crucified. John 14, 6 says, Jesus answered them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When God created us, he created our bodies and our spirits. Our spirits will last forever. Our bodies won't. The truth, Jesus, lasts forever. And it's ingrained into our, into our spirits to recognize the truth when we hear it. Our spirits are drawn to it. Even if we are lost in sin and our spirit knows when it's hearing the truth. We can resist it. We can run from it, or we can accept it and move towards it and receive it and live our lives rejoicing with the truth. So the next part of the scripture is love always protects. When the woman caught in adultery was brought before Jesus, the crowd wanted to stone her in accordance with the law. They could have done that and everything would have been done legally. Jesus protected her, though. Even though she was guilty of her sin, 
he wanted to give her the opportunity to repent. But to do that, first, he had to protect her from being killed by the mob. By having the mob examine themselves, he was able to send them away, and then he got to talk to the woman. And then she got to repent, and then her life, her spirit was, and soul were saved. So the next part is love always trusts. The disciples trusted Jesus with their lives. They each, by their choice to follow him, gave up their livelihoods to follow him. And they had to live by faith that their, their needs would be met as they went with him. This became even more evident when Jesus fed the people of the loaves and the fishes. He told them to take the basket and start handing out the bread and the fish. So can you imagine if you were one of the disciples and you have this basket with fish and loaves of bread in it, and you're looking at a crowd of 5,000 people, and Jesus has told you to go out and feed them. So you go out and feed them because you trust that Jesus is going to do something big. Amen? Love always hopes and always perseveres. Love always hopes, meaning that we live, in the, we live expecting for a certain thing to happen, either for ourselves or someone else. We anticipate the best outcome in all situations and for, for them or ourselves. We have that desire for our friends and family that don't know Jesus to come to know him. Hope links with perseverance. Hope over time only survives with perseverance. The persistence in doing something despite the difficulty or delay in achieving the end result. Would you have the praise team come back up, please? So when we look at 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, we see the grace and mercy that God first extended to us, but is being put forth as a standard for us to follow in relationships with each other. So I would urge you to reread it whenever you can to keep it fresh in your mind and in your heart. This will strengthen every relationship you have and help start new relationships on a solid foundation. It also will improve your witness because people watch what you do and listen to what you say. Remember John 13, 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. So uh, let's pray for Father, we thank you for your word today and ask that your wisdom and grace, of, that you apply it to our lives every day. We pray that you give the grace and patience that you had given us, that we give that to our neighbors. We pray for your presence in all of our relationships, that they grow with love, the love that you have shown to us, and that we in turn show it to them. Lord, you are... Help us to be what, help us to be when we are seen that you are seen, Lord. We just ask that your presence is on us so strong, people see us in you. And we ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.